Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our Bible study here this evening. Lord, we thank you that there is a blessed hope that uh, this life is not the only thing, and uh, that there is that uh, great eternal day for us to enjoy in your presence in a new creation and a new heaven and new earth that uh, you have set up. Uh, we look forward to that, but the reality is, is we live in this present life to here and now, and uh, help us as we look at this uh, book of Second Thessalonians and continue to look at uh, how we are to live in the light of your coming again. Uh, may we understand uh, some of the vital truths that uh, are necessary for us to be a good testimony uh, in a world that is one day going to be judged. And uh, so, Lord, uh, help us to gather the, the understanding of this book and be able to use it and glorify you in this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hopefully when you got in, you got uh, a note sheet for Second Thessalonians, and I did not hand out any ones with all the blanks filled in. So uh, I know Barb may have been looking for that one this week, but it was not there. And, uh, but uh, we are in this book that is a companion book, and it's pretty close uh, to being a uh, almost written about the same time as the one we looked at last week in First Thessalonians, but we'll talk about that here in a second. So we go through this book, no surprise here, this is a book written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, we are getting closer to running out of books. Uh, we run into the pastoral epistles and Philemon, and then the book whether people question whether Hebrews is written by Paul or somebody else, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Um, this book was written not very long after the first letter. Um, as far as we can tell in reading Second Thessalonians, the first letter was delivered. The one who delivered it, which we're not told, uh, had a chance to see the response to the letter for a period of time. Okay? But the way that it's written, it, it's only for like a month or two, is really what it feels like as far as what we see in the Second Thessalonians. Um, the bearer of the letter came back with a report Paul wrote this letter while he was still in Corinth, okay? So Paul wrote the first letter while he was in Corinth. We know the date when Paul was there because we know the governor by the name of Gallo was there in uh, AD 51, uh, and we know this from historical fact and from archaeology and all of these things that he was only governor for basically one year in that city. Paul's there during that time frame. Um, and we also know this, that Paul is with the same individuals that he was with in the first letter. Uh, you see the introduction of 2 Thessalonians 1, it says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus. Basically, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It's the only time, no time after this ever again are these men written and recorded as being together. Okay, so... Um, short period of time, okay? Because once they, Paul leaves Corinth, they kind of go their separate ways. Timothy keeps coming back, but Silas is doing other things, and so we never have them together as a group working in a location. So we kind of say, okay, same location, same time period. Um, so the date for this is about 51 AD in the fall or 52, the spring of that year. Um, so most people... It's about five, six months apart at most that you have 1 Thessalonians written and then 2 Thessalonians written. And so 
uh, very close together, not too long uh, separated apart. Purpose of this letter, okay, this is the shortest of Paul's letter to any church. Okay, there are shorter ones, Philemon uh, is just one chapter, uh, and um, the one to Titus is shorter, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, but uh, this is the shortest one to any church. As such, it doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, build-up and material in the sense of lots of different subjects that are being dealt with. Paul does two things. There's a short section, basically chapter one, where he gives commendations. He's saying, you know, I'm hearing good things, you're continuing on, and uh, that type of thing. And then you have the chapters two and chapter three, where the apostles having to deal with things that he's hearing that are either bad doctrines or bad application of doctrine. Okay, wrong, wrong thinking and wrong teaching, and then wrong application of right teaching that he has to correct. And so a lot of it has to deal with the second coming of Christ. In fact, uh, most of what is discussed in this book is this material that's about end-time events. And uh, it's loaded with that, and we will spend uh, right in the heart of chapter 2, and one of the passages is probably one of the more important ones in the New Testament for understanding the end times uh, and the explanation of it. So, theme, wow, you've seen that one before. That was last week's. It's, you know, six months later, theme's pretty much the same. Uh, how are you supposed to live out your Christian life in the light of uh, the second coming of Christ, uh, in the light of Christ's return? And it'll be very practical when you get to chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. So, as we get into the heart of the book and as we just get right into it here, you find out that Paul just starts off his letter and thanks the Lord for continued growth. That these believers, the Thessalonians, despite the fact that they are in a city that persecutes them, that they got hauled before the government uh, already, you see that in Acts, that they were this way, and it seems like the persecution just continues uh, to go on, that Paul is thankful for what's going on. I mean, just let's read what it says here. Verse number two, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, as, as good, right, because that your faith groweth uh, exceedingly, and the charity, or we might say this, uh, the, the same word is love, of every one of you toward all uh, in each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Now, what you have to remember is how Paul started his first letter, okay? Because when he started off his first letter, there were three things that he said, I'm excited to see that these things are energetic and active. Uh, you see uh, this statement that Paul says, I am remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and the patience of hope. And we said those things, hope is being uh, patient, uh, that you have a faith that works and, and love that is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Paul here, if you look in this introduction, he mentions those three ideas again. Okay, you might not catch it, but the fact is, as you look there in the second uh, the statement there, he talks about the fact that your faith grows exceedingly, 
Your charity, your love uh, is abounding towards one another. And verse 4, that your patience in persecutions and tribulations that you endure, I'm glorying in. So there's this continuing of this activity that's displaying itself, a faith that uh, is going forward, that uh, there is a hope that's believing the Lord's coming, so it's able to endure. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm thanking the Lord for this, and I'm telling others, well, you ought to see what's going on in that church at Thessalonica. These things are going on despite all of the persecutions, you ought to see what's going on. It, it kind of reminds me of what we used to be doing especially when we were getting reports of um, back in the 80s of what was going on in Russia. Now here they are going to prison pretty, you know, regularly going to prison and you're getting these reports and going, you know, the church there, you know, is not really probably thriving because of all the persecution. You're getting all these reports and it's thriving. I mean, those are things you go look at what the Lord is doing amongst those individuals that they are enduring, they are showing love towards people that are persecuting them, and you see this. And so the Apostle Paul is just abounding, he's profuse in his um, statement of what he is seeing in this church. And so uh, you have this, that in a few months since the letter to the church, or since the previous letter, the church's love, faith, and hope, seeing a display of patience, had continued to manifest itself and was a source of rejoicing and testimony of Paul and other churches. So he just starts off with that. And he goes, I'm, I'm excited. It's still going on. It's great. It's still working out like uh, you were before her. But then Paul makes this statement. He has to remind them of the temporariness of persecution. Okay, we tend to look at the immediate surroundings and forget that they aren't permanent. You know, our problems become so large before our eyes and then we forget the fact that they are merely temporary. And he talks about this, uh, verse 4, he ends it this way, in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when and he shall come to be glorified in his saints, to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you is believed in that day. I mean, you go through this, and Paul does this. The church continued to undergo persecution. Some might consider this a lack of God's care and blessing. And understand this. We, we in our flesh do this. Okay, I remember in John chapter 9, here you have this blind man that's there, and the disciples ask this, did this man sin or his parents? The automatic assumption is, okay, well, they're, they're not enjoying God's blessing because they did something wrong. And people undergoing persecution at times might go, you know, have I done something wrong, or does God not care? So Paul reminded the church that those who persecuted them would eventually be judged when God returned to earth. They would not only be judged, but also separated from God forever. Okay, He'll judge the nations, he'll bring them to task for all that they've done, he'll have a judgment for that, but as you see the way that the Apostle Paul describes it, that they will be um, 
punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Okay? They're sent out from the presence of God. There's blessing in the presence of God. You're not in the presence of God. These individuals are going to, for eternity, be separated from the blessings of God. And with Paul stating this, he says this, the believer's testimony and persecution might be the cause of belief in some of those individuals. Okay? You, you, you shouldn't just merely going, oh, these people are going to get what they deserve. You know, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Okay, I, I will wait here and just kind of bide my time until the Lord gets them. He'll get them someday. And the Apostle Paul goes, well, wait a second. There in verse 10, the Lord's going to come when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired of all them that believe because our testimony among you is believed in that day. There are going to be people who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in the midst of your persecutions and observing what you do in those persecutions and it's going to happen and one day the Lord's going to come and those people who are persecuting, some of you, uh, some of them are going to be glorifying God and rejoicing with you when the Lord returns. I was thinking about this. Isn't it ironic that Paul is the one writing this? Remember what he's doing in the the beginning? If we hadn't had the rest of the story, uh, when you read Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, he's hauling people off, he's sending them to prison, he's consenting to their death, he's persecuting the church of God. But you do know that there are things bothering him, whether it's the, 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 what he knows and he's heard about Jesus Christ or watching the persecution and the way Christians react. But when the Lord appears to him on the road to Damascus and he says this, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? For it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Okay, the proddings, like an ox goad that's going on. These sharp pointed things in mind. I tend to think as you read the story, I think we have the story in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen dies the way he does and he's making comments and he's done the preaching. I think that's part of what is the convincing of the Apostle Paul that there's something different about this. I think that's why he rages all the more right after this happens. So Saul, or Saul, who is then Paul, is making a statement of this. Hey, just continue to do what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian. Understand God will judge those that are persecuting you. And one day you'll be gathered to bless uh, the Lord. And there'll be others that have persecuted you that by your testimony are going to be there. So you just continue to do what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian. The Lord's coming back. So you could end right there and go, okay, the Lord's coming back. Here's how we live our life and is the Christian life, uh, how we do this uh, in the time that we have. But you do understand as you read this, in verse 11 you have this, wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling, fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of the faith and power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He does close with a prayer there. He doesn't say, continue on what you're doing. You know, you're being strong. No, he says you also need the Lord's help. So I'm praying for the Lord's help that you continue to stand the way that you should. Now, that brings us to the heart of this book and the section that is one that is of much discussion, but it's easy to understand even though it's of much discussion. 
When you read the New Testament, and especially passages of Scripture, when it comes to end-time events, you need to understand that the writers of the New Testament, when they're talking about end-time events, there is an expectation that you have... wire myself here. That as you go to the New Testament and you look at end-time events, they're expecting you to have a knowledge of the Old Testament. When you read the book of Revelation, as you read through it, you will find that there are not many quotes. In fact, there are very few quotes. But if you look at it, there are over 400 allusions to the Old Testament. And, and what John is just alluding to, it's like, okay, you know, he just mentioned something, and it's, it's the expectation is, you know your Old Testament. I kind of got a grasp of this when I was in college, and I took a class on end-time events. You know what they called it? Daniel and Revelation. Kind of like, okay, let's get to Revelation. That's the good stuff, Okay. And what they were understanding is this, is that there are passages, especially uh, in the latter half in 7 through 12, but in some of the other passages, where there are explanations of what's going to happen amongst the nations and what God's going to do with the Jewish people and certain people that are going to rise up, one who's going to cause an abomination that makes desolate. He's going to be in the temple and do something to make the, the temple desolate, empty, and you have all of this, and then you get to the book of Revelation, you have the, you know, these things that are mentioned about this, this beast who rises up and he sets up an idol and boasts himself in the temple and these type of things, and you're going... And, and he doesn't explain all the details, and what you're going is, oh, wait, I need to have an Old Testament understanding. So it is when you get to this passage in Second Thessalonians, as you read through this, there is an expectation that you know your Old Testament... Okay, the Old Testament is valuable for you to understand the new at times. And so what you have in, in this chapter is I'm just going to read this through and then we're going to work our way through this for you to understand what is being talked about as far as end time events. Verse 1 says this, chapter 2, it says this, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not so, so soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition." who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And, and now ye know what uh, withholdeth uh, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let, or we might say this, restraineth will restrain until he be taken out of the way. 
And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy him with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved." Verse 11, for this cause shall God send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all may be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, what's going on here? This is a church, the Thessalonican church, is a church that <clears throat> is very much interested or about end-time events. And previously in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there were some saying this, well, what about people who die? Do they get to enjoy heaven in their body? And that's the question. Because if the Lord's coming back, we're still here in our body. We go body and soul and spirit. But what happens to the, well, individuals who died before that, you know, what's going on with them? And the Lord makes very clear, listen, they, they come down from glory their body meets them uh, in the air, and then we which are alive and remain shall be gathered to the Lord uh, and be with him, uh, and uh, we're gathered in the air, not to come to earth, okay? So this is not talking about Christ's second coming, because Christ's second coming is when Jesus comes and steps on the earth. He comes to earth physically the second time and is here, physically. So that was the question in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here the question is this, okay? There's a correction about the timing of the day of the Lord. There's some of the believers that the church, when they looked around, persecution was upon them, and they came to certain wrong conclusions. Some had concluded that they had missed the rapture and were now in the day of the Lord when God would bring great tribulation upon all the nations. I mean, they're looking around them and all the persecution that's going on, and they're going, oh, you know what? I think we missed the rapture, and we somehow are in the day of the Lord where God's judging the nations and preparing for him to come back and to rule and reign. And so they, they're, they're going, we, we missed it, we're going through this judgment time of the Lord. And Paul has to say, okay, wait a second, I, I'm going to tell you this, no, you haven't missed, you know, he could have just said this, no, you didn't miss the rapture. But what he wants to say is this, I, wanna, I want you to be sure, here's the definitive signs that you're in that tribulation time. And he gives two signs, Okay? Paul answered this thought with two events that would signal the day of the Lord had started. First, there would have been a falling away or an apostasy. You see this in verse number uh, 3. It says this, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now this word apostasy is a term that is used, uh, falling away is a term, that's what the word is in the Greek, is apostasy. Okay, that's the word, but it means simply to fall away. And many times as you see it in the scripture, it's talking about someone who has knowledge of Christ, knowledge of the gospel, and they 
turn from it. They leave it. They abandoned it. And what Paul is going to say here is that right here at this time, there's not a great apostasy going on. The church has just started. People are getting saved, and there's not a whole lot of apostatizing, though there are people falling away. But there's not a great apostasy where it just seems like everything is turning from a knowledge of God and His Son. That everything in the world is just turned against that. Even churches. Okay? So there's got to be that taking place. Now, I would suggest the fact that there would be a great collapse in this if you have the rapture and you have all believing individuals taken out of churches. You're going to have a falling away. But the second thing that's going to happen, and this is, and this is what the Lord said is going to be the real sign. If, you, if you, you don't catch that this is going on on a grand scale, here's the second thing. It's an appearance of a man who's called the man of sin. You see this in verse number four again, or verse number three, uh, that he is the man of sin, the son of perdition. This one is going to be revealed. Now, this man would set himself up in the temple of Jerusalem as an object of worship. He himself. Now, this is where it comes in, and you go, okay, knowledge of the Old Testament and some of the teaching of Christ, you're going to know exactly what's being talked about here. Statement is this. This man could not be revealed until the one withholding no longer restrains. Now, I, I make this statement, and we, we drop down here. You say, this is, this is a matter of controversy. You look down in... Verse number seven, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work only he who now letteth, or we would say withholdeth until he be taken out of the way. This person won't fully be revealed until you have something taken out of the way. Now, there are two lines of discussion, and I'm not going to argue for either one of them right now, but some say, well, what is this describing? Is it that the church has left and been pulled out? That's what's restraining. So then the events can start churning that eventually, as we will say three and a half years into the tribulation, this man of sin is revealed. So it's the church. Or is it talking about the Holy Spirit who is restraining, holding things down, controlling what's going on, and keeping things from being worse than what they are, but then as you see the Holy Spirit go, okay, I'm taking off the restraints, you see all sorts of wickedness. Because it's not until the man of sin's revealed that you have the great tribulation. It's tribulation, but after this time, it's really bad. It's unlike anything else in human history. That's what the Lord describes it as in the Olivet Discourse. There's no other time like this. Before or after. In human history. And you say, well, why is that? Because God is restraining the wickedness of individuals and there's just this time where it's like, okay, I'm going to let mankind have the restraints pulled off. And it is revealed at the time where this man stands up and says, I am God, and declares this. So there is, you say, when does this happen? 
in this passage, that's one matter of controversy, just a sense of when, when, who is this that restrains? Uh, there could be two things here. I, I tend to perhaps lean a little bit more to the Holy Spirit than the church um, because it seems to be a, a masculine type thing that's here going on, and that's how God is oftentimes referred to as not the church. So that's what I go with. But anyhow, okay? Now, the man of sin is the one who's been warned about in the Old Testament and in Christ's teaching. You read Daniel chapter 9. You have these 70 weeks, and at the end of the 70 weeks, you got one week. In the middle of that week, here's this man who sets up something. He breaks a peace treaty that he has, and he sets up the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that makes empty or desolate. Uh, Daniel chapter 11 talks about an individual who's by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a type. The man, this is why we have the celebration of Hanukkah. Okay, a man who for three years... After he set up, uh, if I remember my dates correctly, B.C. 169, if I remember correctly, he sets up an idol to Zeus, offers a sacrifice of a pig, and declares that all the Jews must worship Zeus or die. You say, what happened at that point? All the Jews fled to the hills. They went to the mountains. They ran. They hid. They didn't stop. They, They continued on. And when you have the Lord talking about this in Matthew chapter 24, when this abomination of desolation shows up, you know, the real thing, not just this, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes, who's a type of this, but you have the one that's like this. Uh, What does he tell people to do? This is the passages where you have this. If you're on your rooftop, don't go back down into your house to grab anything. Just run. He goes, I'm really sorry if you're pregnant during this time frame, but it doesn't matter. Run flee to the hills, leave, get away as far as fast as you can. And that is why this is known as the abomination of desolation. Desolation just means something that's empty. Now, we have more details on this, and we're going to get to this in a second. Now, this one who is empowered by Satan comes into the temple, demands to be worshiped, This would be an abomination. As you read through the Old Testament, an abomination uh, is oftentimes either idol sacrifices or an idol. And some activity that's sinful is an abomination. But for the most part, when you have that statement referring to an abomination, it's referring to an idol. Okay, someone who's taking the place of God. Uh, This would be an abomination. His demand to be worshipped would cause the temple to be empty or desolate. People are going to run and the people that would be there would be the Jews, okay? The world in general following the Antichrist. The Jews, they're out of there. They're running. Now, John in the book of Revelation gives more detail, Revelation 13, about this one who at times is known as the beast and the Antichrist. I want us to turn, well... I want to do this. Let me give you the next slide, and then we'll go to Revelation 13. Okay? This claim by the man of sin is the lie. Okay? You have in your Bible in chapter 2 and verse 11 of 2 Thessalonians, it says, a lie. What's going to happen is that people are going to believe 
For this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe not a lie. In the Greek, it is the lie. You ought to underline that A and put in the lie. And you go, what's the lie? The beast is supposed to be worshipped. I mean, you look at the context of what's being talked about here. That's the lie. I'm God. That's the lie. And God sends a strong delusion. You know, there's people who are rumbling against God at this point already, and they're hearing the testimony of the two witnesses and all these uh, 144,000 witnesses that are out there preaching the message of the cross and doing this and preaching this, and they're upset by this. And this man rises up and says, I'm God, and they kind of believe it because he's been a good guy to this point. Most of us think that the first three and a half years of the tribulation that this Antichrist is like, you know, he's Adolf Hitler and starting off that way. Remember this, when Adolf Hitler started off, he was well-liked. That's why many people thought in the 1940s that they were in the end times because they thought, oh, Adolf Hitler killing off Jews, all of this, man who rose to power and popularity because he solved problems, um, yeah. But what, what you have in, in looking at this, the, this individual who is preaching this message and he is declaring this, there are going to be certain individuals there that go, I like this. You know what? I don't like the alternative of this other God that's there. Uh, this one seems to be a problem solver. He is, and understand the term antichrist. Okay. We think of the term anti as meaning against. And it does mean that. But in the Greek, you got an interesting word there when you have anti. It can mean both against and in place of. And you go, the Antichrist fits both of those. Uh huh, he's against Christ, and he is raising himself up in place of Christ. You'll find him referred to as the Antichrist. In Revelation, it's more the beast rather than the Antichrist. But what's going to happen is that these people, God's going to send uh, a delusion to them. They're going to believe this. They've been going against God, and God finally goes, okay, you can go this way. And what you have is this, is that Revelation indicates the people get the mark of the beast, and this choice seems to be a binding choice that brings eternal judgment. Okay, now I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 13. Realize that John is writing this about 30 years after this revelation in 2 Thessalonians, so this would have been added to the revelation of the Scripture. But I want you to just read in verse 1, it says this, John says this, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And you go, oh, where's that from? That's from Daniel. He's talking about the last of the Roman uh, Empire, the extended Roman Empire, that there's this one beast that rises up and has the ten horns and seven crowns, in some cases ten crowns, uh, and it's this beast creature that is, rising up in the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were the feet of a bear. His mouth were the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, which is Satan, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. 
I saw one of his heads is wounded unto death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war upon him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given to him to continue forty and two months. Go, how long is forty and two months? Three and a half years. Okay? Tribulations last seven, but he's going to have power, absolute power, for three and a half years. He opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and all them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the power was given over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose name were not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But then look at verse 11. You have this beast that's there. This is a different beast. This is a false prophet, one who's promoting the beast. I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he was, it had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he hath power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed." He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and their forehead, and no man, that no man might buy or sell, save he that hath a mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is six hundred, three score, and six. Six, six, and six. Okay. So here you have an explanation of what's really going to happen here. This man's going to be proclaiming all sorts of blasphemies. And what you have in this account is that he is wounded unto death. Okay, Why is he in place of Christ? He's an individual who looks like he's been killed. Some suggest the fact that he might have, and Satan's got the power to raise from the dead. You go, I don't know about that. He's got power to call down fire. He's got power to do all those things. If God goes, okay, I'm going to allow that to happen... But whatever the case is, it looks like he's dead. He rises from the dead. And they make this image that's there to the beast, and that image even has the ability to kill. It's an image of this man who's proclaiming himself to be God. And all those that don't receive the mark that are in range of that beast are killed. And you kind of go... Oh, so that's what this is talking about in 2 Thessalonians. Yes, there's an individual who's going to come into the temple, which hasn't been built yet, okay? And there's no temple right now. Dome of the Rock is not a temple. It's not a Jewish temple. So somewhere along the line, there's a temple built. Okay, that still has to happen. But there's a temple built. Man stands up and says, I'm God, and anyone who doesn't worship God and doesn't get the mark in their hands, their forehead, that proclaim the fact of that I worship you go, what is this? You know, is it some sort of official mark where you can see it? Or, you know, is it a chip that's implanted? I don't know. You know, we're assuming at this point. 
But in the end, you go, well, what's, what's the, the bad thing about this? It's what 2 Thessalonians says about individuals like this. Because you got in Revelation chapter 14, 9 through 11, what happens to these individuals? Verse 9, it says this, and it's talking about these angels that are doing different things. The third angel followed and said with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, excuse me, in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day nor night, nor worship the beast in his image, whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So basically you're saying this is what you already have Paul saying, that these individuals will one day be judged, the nations that rise up against him, that follow this individual who's the beast, that get his mark, that they're going to eventually be separated from the presence of the Lord forever. So that's what's being talked about here. The event that you need to go, are we in the midst of the tribulation? Well, okay, is there a great falling away where it seems like everything in the world is turning against the gospel? Every single thing, including everyone that you would think is following the gospel, has just kind of gone away. Okay, we could be in end times, but when you have that event happen, the abomination that makes desolate, that's the time where you know, okay, we're in the day of the Lord. And so Paul goes, you're not there yet. I mean, he goes through all that explanation, basically says to people, you're not there yet. So going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter chapter 2, Paul's challenge is this, okay? He says, okay, so you stay in the gospel. You stay in Christ, okay? You're going to have a whole world of people that follow after this one who's a false Christ. You stay in what you know about Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 13 But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of glory. You're going to be in heaven someday of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold to the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, establish you in every good word and work. And Paul in verse 3 actually says, pray for me too, because I'm not, you know, you're not the only people who worry about persecution. Look at verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. So what, what Paul says is this, Paul moves from those who are condemned to the believers in Thessalonica. He says, God's established you in the gospel, okay? Don't be moved from the gospel. Don't fall away from the gospel, okay? It's really the challenge there. Don't apostatize. God had been concerned about them from the beginning and would continue to do a good and confirming work in them. They need to stand fast in the faith. Even Paul asked for prayer that he would stand in the face of opposition part of that strength to stand is to look for the coming of Christ. And you see that in verses 3 and 4 and uh, verse number 5 there. Now, Paul's not done. He's got one more thing he's got to address. Okay, okay. You're not in the day of the Lord. 
you continue to stand, you hold to the gospel, don't fall away. But what Paul has to deal with is this. He's got to correct about working or occupation, we might say, in the light of Christ's coming. Verse 6, Paul says this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which we received of us, for yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought or worked, we might say, with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example for you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, walking not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, have no company with that man, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. See, what had happened is this. Some in the congregation had heard Paul's teaching that the Lord was coming soon and decided, if he's coming soon, why work? Why, why am I storing up stuff? Because if he's coming back immediately, <laughs> you know, why, why, you know, why labor, toil, do that kind of thing uh, if the Lord's coming soon? And Paul, in dealing with this, they had figured out that they need to work, store up supplies, the Lord's coming back. As a result, these believers were a bad testimony in the community. I mean, their problem was this. They were busybodies in other people's business. You know, what are they doing? They don't have anything to do, so what are they doing? They're wandering around bothering everybody else because they're not working. And it's a bad testimony. Now, Paul compared these slackers to a military unit that could not march in line with others, in this case, with other believers. Okay, every time I think of this, when this term disorderly comes along, it's a term about a military unit that is marching, and then there are certain in the group that aren't marching in the same pace. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you an illustration from my far past, but I remember this as a kid. Any of you ever watched Three Stooges? There's some, one of their things where they get involved and then recruited to go into the army and here they are and what they're supposed to be doing is marching in line and you see this line of people marching very well and then all of a sudden in the back you've got guys who are skipping as they go along as they're carrying their rifles and of course as they are told to turn they go the wrong way and whatever else. They're hitting each other with rifles and, and this and it, it's chaos and you're going, you got this, you know, great military unit and then you've got these people in the back that are making a total you know everyone's going what what disorder that's what's going on in the church because here the church is holding up hey the lord's coming back and they're faithfully working in the community and then you got these people who are doing nothing you're going they're not marching in step with everybody else they're not marching in line with everything that goes on and so Paul gave himself as an example of one who worked when he was with the Thessalonians. He mentioned this the first thing. He said, I came here and I worked. I worked with my hands day and night so that you wouldn't have to pay me for me to preach you the gospel. 
Little did they know it was he had far enough in his mind, perhaps from the Lord, that there would be people that would go this line. But he worked. He also given a command that if one did not work, they would not eat. You think about this, this is what happens uh, in 1607 in the Jamestown colony. You've got a guy there who realizes that everyone's just working and putting everything in the storehouse, and there are people that aren't working because they're like, oh, well, you know what? There's stuff in the storehouse we can eat. And they finally said, well, why don't we implement the Bible principle that says if you don't work, you don't eat. Paul commanded this. These people were to work and eat their own bread. If they did not do this, the church was to correct them, and if no change happened, remove them from the church. The believers were to still challenge these wayward believers, but not to keep company with them. I mean, this is a disciplinary offense. When you have the church that's marching and doing what they're supposed to be doing, and then you have someone who's clearly ignoring commands and admonitions, and they're doing their own thing, it's like this. Make sure that people know that person isn't directly connected to us. They're not a part of us. They're not going to ruin our testimony. And so this is what Paul admonishes. Remove those members so your testimony as a church is not confused. And you can be the testimony that you need to be. Conclusion, Paul in closing prayer prayed that God would give peace to these believers that were under persecution. I mean, you got basically three, four verses left. Yeah, three verses left. He prays for peace. He acknowledges, I'm writing this with my own hand. Probably had someone else write it because we know Paul had bad handwriting. He's admitted that in other letters, but he's saying, I'm signing this, and I want you to know this is a concern to me, and I'm telling you directly, I'm telling you this. So do what you need to do. And uh, it ends and closes off that way. So this is a letter very much about the second coming and how to apply it. Some misapplying it. You know, there are many people who understand certain things about end-time events, and then they go and do something completely contrary to what they should be doing because they're ignoring what the rest of Scripture says. I mean, that's what happened here. Oh, the Lord's coming back. They forgot all the other passages that says, work until the Lord comes back. You know, so uh, there are elements of that, and so it's a good book easy to figure out once you realize what's going on that you're supposed to have a knowledge of old testament and other passages of scripture um but yeah we're not in the day of the lord you think things are bad now they're going to get worse okay so uh guaranteed uh and uh we're not there yet lord we thank you you are a great god and you've given us much to look forward to may we work like we should, being a testimony uh, to those that are around us that uh, we are uh, working in the task that you've called us to and that uh, we as a church body would uh, be individuals that would band together, do uh, what we should be doing uh, together and that the world would see uh, a difference between us and what else is going on in the world. And so we pray that we live in the light of eternity. We're headed somewhere the rest of the world's headed somewhere. May we live as lights that Jesus Christ can save and give grace and glory for eternity. And may we live that way. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.